Oh, singing the psalms and the spiritual songs and the hymns. You know, sometimes uh, those songs, a hymn can help us understand gospel truths. That's really kind of what they're about. Not only just to praise God, to help us to understand uh, the truths of the great doctrinal teachings that are in Scripture. And in our uh, text today, Paul actually quotes a hymn. We're going to be studying a hymn today that is inspired by God, uh, written down by Paul. That was actually sung by the early church. Can you imagine that? Here's a song the early church probably sang. And uh, it is used to present four great truths, great spiritual truths, key truths about our personal relationship with Christ. And uh, what they do is they demonstrate that God is faithful to all of His promises. He is faithful to His warnings. Promises and warnings. And uh, we know that uh, God's promises, God's uh, warnings, um, really call us to repentance and faith or trust in Him. So we need to be reminded constantly of the promises of God, don't we? You know, sometimes we forget about that frequently. I think we need to be reminded of those promises. And, uh, you know, we have trying times in our Christian lives and sometimes we can tend to take a step backwards. But, you know... We are always in the need of grace. And uh, this chapter 2 that we first started with says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in that grace and where He has put us. And uh, that we would be able to have a firm commitment to Him. And uh, we know that sometimes we can be like Timothy was. Timothy was becoming timid. Timothy was becoming uh, afraid. He was not as courageous as as he should have been. He was becoming very fearful. Uh, Timothy was becoming timid, right? And Paul realized that. And that's why he wrote this particular letter. And it's not only needed then to Timothy, but it is needed by us. We need this. We need to hear these positive promises. We need to hear the encouragement that Paul and God is giving us, the Holy Spirit. We need to have those motivations for our Christian lives, our ministries. We need to hear these verses today as God speaks to us and as we go through this ancient hymn that's inspired in Scripture. Now, in chapter 2, we have seen different pictures of how we're to live this Christian life. And uh, the pictures are obvious. There are some of that a little bit more that we talked about, but three that you can really remember are uh, the pictures like the soldier and the athlete and the farmer and how committed they are as being that type of uh, a picture uh, or in their daily uh, discipline and in their endurance that they have all of those whether it be that uh, soldier, the athlete, farmer. They have to stick with it. And then right after that, right in the middle of all these pictures, because actually there are more pictures to go in chapter 2 that Paul gives us in how we live this life. And we get a balanced view because of Jesus Christ. Right in the middle it says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ. And you remember about... He's the Savior died for our sins who arose from the dead. This is a powerful God, right? You remember Him. And 
Even though He's the Son of Man, He's the Son of David, He is the Son of God. And He is all of the above. And if we can remember who He is and we focus on Him, then we can be that soldier, we can be the athlete, and we can be the, this farmer. We can be like that and endure. This is a war. This good soldier knows He's in the war. And He uh, recognized that. And uh, it's about discipline. It's about hard work. That's what all of these illustrations are about. We can endure this war. We can endure because of the motives, because of the promises, the motivations that are given by uh, the Scripture here, I think is uh, definitely incredible. I think they're very helpful. They're very encouraging. And uh, right in the middle, uh, just remember Jesus Christ. Those three words right there can get us a long way because that's where everything is to be focused on. So be reminded of Christ. And today we're going to be talking about uh, one of the things that we'll be dealing with as far as the promise is concerned is His faithfulness. Remember His faithfulness. And uh, because of that, we will persevere. We will persevere to the end because of who He is. So Paul is telling Timothy, who is taking a step back from this, he was tending to shade off a little bit, and he says, look at Christ. Remember Him. He's the the one who rose from the dead. And we too want to look at Christ. And remember this one who rose from the dead in case we lose our focus, which we sure can. So there will be four promises to drive this home as we look at this today. Let's, uh, Let's stand for a moment. And let's read this text, which is, like I say, probably a hymn. It says in verse 11 of chapter 2, it is a trustworthy statement. That's your title for the day. For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for You are the true God. You are the faithful one. Thank You that we have promises knowing that we're in Christ, we'll have eternal life. We'll also reign with You. But if we've not trusted in You, we will deny You. And if we have no faith, no trust, You still will be faithful to who You are and to Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated and uh, we'll go right to chapter 2, verse 11. This is about, as we have been talking about remembering Jesus Christ, we got up to this point last week and uh, that was as far as we could go, time-wise. And so we move right on into this, this week and so I got to spend a lot more time in that. And uh, I think there is uh, plenty here. More than enough. And he starts off with, it is a trustworthy statement. And that's good to hear because we don't always trust everything that we read and or even see on the Internet, right? You don't trust everything that you don't trust a whole lot of things sometimes. But when it comes from God and He says it is a trustworthy statement, He's really putting emphasis there because we know everything in here is trustworthy. But He's really saying, pay attention to this. 
this is real. It's like when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. I mean, your ears perk up, right? So this is a trustworthy statement. And so he's introducing something here that's uh, axiomatic. Uh, It's a great principle. It's a truism. That's a good way to put it. This is a truism that everybody knew. It was not anything that they didn't know. They knew this. It was common knowledge. And so this whole passage is that. So uh, he says, it is a trustworthy statement. It is. It's a present tense. And what it's emphasizing there is that this is now and it's always no matter what. This is a trustworthy statement. God's promises are trustworthy. God's promises are something that we not only trust in, but we know they'll never fail. They will not come close to failing. And this is unique to to Paul. At least he says this several times. This is a trustworthy statement. I think five times, and it's found in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And nobody else says that the way that he does. And so let's look at a pattern that he does through these pastoral epistles to these pastors, Timothy and Titus, and then to us today even. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 15. And sure enough, there it is. It is a trustworthy statement. What kind? Deserving full acceptance. What is it? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That's true, isn't it? That's really true. I mean, that is basic true. Everybody knows that. He came in the world to save sinners. That's Jesus. He is the Savior. That's Christ to save sinners. That's one of them there. And then chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. And right in the first verse, uh, he starts talking about the qualifications of elders, and he says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. If one has this desire to be a pastor, or also known as an elder, or also known as what the word is here, overseer, which is, which is bishop, which is episkopos, which is how you get the denomination Episcopalian. They have overseers. But really, it's, it's the same office. We've said this many times. Pastor, elder, overseer, or um, episcopos. Really, uh, they're, they're, the same, they're the same person. Uh, same office there. And so, it's a good thing. That's a trustworthy statement. If one desires to be a pastor or elder, it's good. It's a good thing. That's trustworthy. We can trust in that. Chapter 4, verse 9. Same, same letter there. 1 Timothy 4, 9. And here it is again. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is this, if this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. That's pretty trustworthy too, isn't it? It's very trustworthy. And so we've seen right there three of them. Then we have in our text today, chapter 2, verse 11, and 2 Timothy. And then you go to Titus, and there's one more. Titus is right after 2 Timothy. And you'll find that easily. And then you look at uh, verse 8 and says, this is a trustworthy statement. 
And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. So what he's saying there, it's a trustworthy statement. You can look back before this, and he's talking about the kindness of God and His love for mankind appeared and He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, not on our righteousness, but on His very mercy. It was His righteousness that was given to us and we were regenerated, right? That's a trustworthy statement. He says, uh, now, because of that, now you can engage in good deeds. A Christian who is saved and regenerated now does the works. That's a trustworthy statement, isn't it? So we've seen all of those. We kind of um, did all five of those. Now, we, we, we also mentioned that this is a hymn. It's familiar to the church. They would take um, particular statements, lines, and they would be able to memorize them. Not, ever had a, uh, not everybody had a Bible back in those days, right? It was... Um, something few and far between that, that you'd have. And of course, they were very early in the church. It was just circulatory letters and they would pass them around from church to church. They didn't have printers or copiers. Think how good we have it today. You can get a Bible anywhere, almost everybody. Even unbelievers have Bibles in their homes. And I bet you, you guys have more than one Bible in your home. We have multiple copies, each one of us. But they would uh, memorize God's Scripture, and this is Scripture, but uh, there would also be uh, hymns that they would have from Scripture or something that uh, would be paralleling uh, inspired Scripture. Uh, hymns are a great teaching tool. And so they, uh, like you can think, great is thy faithfulness, right? So you might know a lot of those lyrics because you've sing them over and over and over. Uh, there's a parallelism in this text from 11 through 13. Parallel. And they, they do. You'll see that as we go along. There's a rhythm. I think that's possibly there too. Definitely a rhythm. And especially put it in original language. Uh, so anyway, we know the church, early church, had uh, certain creeds, certain things that they believed, certain things that they would repeat. Uh, they would have... Maybe congregational responses. They didn't really do a lot of things different than what we do. You know, we might have some things, modern songs, and maybe in a different kind of beat or rhythm or the way that it flows, but they're saying the same things that we say. And it's really what makes praise to God. It's what's behind that. What are those words saying? And then when you put a melodic rhythm, now you can be able to maybe understand it in a way that flows uh, to, uh, to to remember and to put it into your into your mind. Uh, so those that's what those creeds were about. And this is possibly uh, right in the middle of a hymn that uh, Paul borrows from that they knew very well what it would have been. Timothy would have known right there in Ephesus. Um, it, some kind of doctrinal teaching uh, because he starts with the word for, F O R. For not not in golf like F O R E, but that gets us teed off and get ready to go right. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. For uh, the middle, um, he has already. It's almost like something has already been said, re- referring back to some earlier um, type thoughts that are in that. It consists of four if clauses. This whole thing is it. You can see them right there. You can count them if you like. There are four of them. I did. I think it better be there, right? If somebody comes up with five, then I'm going to be in trouble. But uh, for this parallelism, that's what it's about. And they're always followed by consequences, either positive or negative. 
and every every one of these. So the first two are referring to the ones who are faithful. And it's easy. If we died with Him, we'll, we'll live with Him. And if we endure with Him, we'll also reign with Him. And those are Christians. Those are the ones who are faithful. Those are the ones who are people of faith. Those are the ones who have life. Those are the ones who will have eternal life reigning with Christ forever. The last two are referring to, to the ones who deny Christ and uh, the ones who have no faith. Ultimately, that's the way that can be broken down. Um, so the overall point here references to what Paul has been saying, that if we endure hardship with Christ, now we will experience glory with Him in the future, in eternity. What's going to happen now? There are going to be some hardships in anybody's life, but a Christian will have hardships. He guarantees that. You look at Second Timothy, and that's what we pretty well see. Thank you guys for enduring so many of these messages that seem to be hardship. Athlete, a farmer, um, the teacher who prepares, works hard, the soldier. Why does he use those? They're people who work hard. They endure through it. You know, they continue on. But he's saying also, look at the glory that is beyond this. And it's all worth it. Matter of fact, it's worth it even right now in this present time. Because even if, you know, um, you're a Christian and you don't think so much of the glory, then just think it's, it's, a, it's a lot better to be under the Lordship of Christ and uh, be able to be focused on Him. But, uh, let's look in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. We're talking about this, um, the hymns, right? As, he, as he's promising that. And here's a little um, aside here in 5.14. He gives um, the principle that we are to walk in the light in chapter 5. And by the time you get to that last verse of that section, walking in the light, and the next one will be walking wisdom. He says, for this reason, okay, he wraps it up in this, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. That's probably a hymn, or part of a hymn. And you'd remember that. Boy, I mean, that is bright. That is glorious, isn't it? Awake, arise, arise. Remember that song? I think that's kind of based on this. Arise from the dead. You know, He will give us, He gives us life. He gives us life every day, right? He has given us life. Christ will shine on you, but that's also to a lost, lost person. You know, our invitation is arise, wake up out of the dead. You know, hopefully God's Word will wake you up. The Holy Spirit will come in and regenerate you. But uh, even a Christian can be sleeping, can't we? Get out of the dead, almost looking like a dead person. Christ will shine on you brightly. He'll illumine you. So that's that's a uh, possibly a hymn, a part of a hymn that they sing. Uh, look in Philippians two, and this is a classic section, and it is known probably by the early church before this was even written in Philippians two. Uh, some of these things we might be pressing a little too much, but uh, this is believed to be part of a hymn. This is 
a well-known section of uh, Scripture, and it's about the humility of Christ. It's the epitome. The greatest example of what humility is, verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Doesn't that really ring to you? It, that seems like that could be a song or it could be a congregational response. It'd be something... Couldn't you hear a whole congregation saying this together? What a truism this is. It's about the humanity of Christ being in the form of man at the same time the deity of Christ and Jesus being called Lord as He is exalted. And boy, I tell you what, that'd be a great praise in a church, wouldn't it? Just to say those verses. And so there is, like we say, possibly another hymn that they should they would have been singing. Look in Colossians one, fifteen to twenty. So we get in touch with the early church here. And they they heard this, they read this passage, but they knew a lot of they knew this even beforehand. Something they they would have learned and kept in their mind. This is a famous text, verse fifteen. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. You can see God who is invisible by the person of Christ who came in the flesh and then also now comes into our hearts, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the prototokos, the preeminent one of all creation, right? For by Him, look at this, boy, this would be really ringing true. Can you imagine a congregation of people getting together, saying this together? For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything you know what the book of Colossians is about first place preeminent one and that capitalizes doesn't it right there that section of what that letter is about. He is the Creator. He is the head of the church. He's the very image of God. Can you imagine the doctrine that could be taught as people would say this together and memorize it and sing it? Hymns are really valuable to us, aren't they? And what they do. Look in First Timothy three sixteen. Here's another one. And this is kind of set apart from the rest of Scripture. You might have bold letters or a section that's italicized or whatever to be helpful to you. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And so he takes this. He who was revealed in the flesh, tells the whole story here, revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, 
taken up in glory. He was here. He was revealed in the flesh, the incarnation, and then we see the glory of God as He was taken up. This is the person of Christ. So those hymns are really focusing on Christ, aren't they? So now, we have talked about the hymn and this trustworthy statement. He says, for if we died with Him, we'll also live with Him. Die with Him. Placed into Christ. We are in Him. My, if you were in persecution, or going through some very difficult times, which they were in Timothy, and there were going to be some difficult times ahead, as uh, we've been studying on uh, Wednesday, or Tuesday night, <laughs> in chapter 3, about difficult times and all the things that will come out of that, and the consequences. And I believe they were happening right there, even during Timothy's time, and they can multiply as it goes on. But being placed into Christ, that would be a very comforting statement, wouldn't it? If we died with Him, we'll also live with Him. So you could take that physically in the matter of persecution, in the matter of martyrdom. Hey, if you die, you live with Him, right? I mean, that, that's pretty good. And I think all of these lines are like first-class conditions here. We know that in the future we'll live with Him. But we also know that we're living with Him now because we already have died with Him. And I, I think what you have is we have a present tense, but we have 2,000 years ago where the the church teaches that we died with Him somehow. We did, we did not live at that time. We were born in time and space. But the, the fact of the matter is is that somehow he, there's a, he transports us in a sense, if I can say that spiritually, and we died with Him at the cross, crucified with Him. Just like we were in Adam. Because the whole race was condemned. We hadn't even sinned. But we know the teaching says in Scripture that we were once in Adam. And Adam, after he sinned, had the whole human race in that same sense. And that's how everybody is a sinner by nature before they're even born, as David says. So, somehow we were in Adam... And then at 2,000 years ago, we were at the cross and we who are Christians died with Him and our sin died in the sense that the power of sin was crushed. Still in the bodies. And yes, we still have sin that we battle, but the power now has been broken. Our old self was crucified. Isn't that good news? Now, a good picture of that is found in Romans chapter 6. If we died with Him. If we died with Him. Romans 6, verse. we'll, we'll start at verse 4. We know a lot of times this is a really good picture of baptism. This is really a dry baptism, but it is the picture of it is very illustrative uh, because we go down into the water and then we come back out. Uh, the... Uh, there is a like with the crucifixion and then we come back out we're alive right and that's what he's been saying so he says that verse 4 therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death 
So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Dead, new. For if we have become united with Him, that's in Christ, in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. And you know, the Lord's Supper illustrates that too, doesn't it? When you think about it. Knowing this, what do we know? That our old self, our flesh, the the, the fleshly aspect, was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died that's us, is freed from sin. The bonds have been broken, right? They've been taken off. We've been freed. Now, if we have died with Christ, if that be the case, if you've trusted Him, if you've died with Christ, then we believe that we shall also live with Him. Now, forever. Amen. (laughs) Is that a song? Now, in the face of persecution, we know that would... I mean, that, that's really good because we're going to live. You know, we, we have eternal life. But even right now... Oh, I can think of so many passages. Are you in Romans still yet? We could turn to the very next chapter if you want to. In chapter 7, about verse 6, we'll try to trim some of this section down. But, but now we have been released from the law that the penalty that the law demands having died to that by which we were bound so there you go the binding so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter remember your former life you ought to see a vast difference between your former life and who you are now you should see a vast difference second corinthians chapter 5 verse 14 we keep pounding Scripture after Scripture to give this support. It's not what Dennis says. What I say really is not much value, but what God says here is what is valued. For the love of Christ controls us having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Substitutionary atonement there. My, I get a lot of doctrines out of this, don't we? I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. We've sang that song before, haven't we? And we remember that one so well. I saw some of your mouths just moving with that. Isn't that a precious verse? And then we can go to Colossians 3 3. This is just all over the scripture, isn't it? Yeah, you know what Dennis said? He said that we died with Christ at the cross. How can that be, you know? And then we look at these texts. We died. Well, and really, it came into place whenever we did trust in Christ, didn't it? You know, there is, as far as God is concerned, He is not bound by time. We are. There is a time when we trusted in Christ. Holy Spirit came in, regenerated us. We decided to follow Christ then. (laughs) Whenever He came and changed our life. We believe, right? We believe in Him. 
Colossians 3.3, 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. People don't see that we have died. Unbelievers don't understand that. And we said, well, I died. You know, we did. But people don't see that. We know we've been hidden in Christ. That's where we are in the ark. He is the ark. The ark is a great picture of Christ, isn't it? And we're in Him. And verse 5 says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Dead to what? To immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, and on and on and on and on. We are dead to sin. We're dead to it. We will live with Him. So, Paul was headed to be with Christ. If you want to know it, he knew exactly where he was going to go. As far as he was concerned, he was ready. He was ready. Timothy needs to hear this, though. He died. You're alive in Christ. The next one is, uh, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we endure. If we endure. The promise here, I like real well. Just like I do eternal life. You're going to reign with Him. Endure. If we endure. Hupomene. Like that word? The soldier has to endure in his war. The athlete has to endure in all his training. They had the uh, state championship yesterday, and you know, you see that on TV, and uh, the, the high school champions of track. Those guys had to actually train all year to get where they were at, to get to the championships. And then the winner, you know, they, uh, they probably just took this so serious. Of course, you're born with something, but you have to work it out, don't you, to be able to do that. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't train and you don't have your muscles trained and uh, every part of you is, is trained to uh, win that race, uh, you're not going to make it. It takes, uh, it takes quite the endurance. Uh, a cross-country run, when you think, uh, it, it just seems like it doesn't end. It's a, it's a long one. It will end in the sense that we'll finally be there in glory, right? But um, it's dealing with being under pressure, being able to endure the, all the things that go in this life. And you may be submitting now, but you're going to be in authority someday. And so what do you mean in authority? We'll always be in submission to Christ, but we'll also be reigning with Him. And that's kind of hard for us to understand. We're going to be kings. We are a kingdom now, although it doesn't seem like it. We are priests now, a kingdom of priests, it says in the New Testament, as it says in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, as it just the Israelites were getting ready to be told about the Ten Commandments. <laughs> they were a little bit later, but the kingdom of priests. But you're going to reign with Christ in the kingdom. That's a staggering promise. What do you mean, a king? We're going to live a king's life. We're going to live a glorified life. If you've endured all that this Christian life has to offer, all the things that are that can come, and come uh, against you, and have not abandoned the faith, 
then you're going to be the one who demonstrates that you're a genuine believer. If you go through all of these turbulent times and all the pressures that are given, that's why he keeps having this if there, and that, that's a big question. And you remember, it's still not works that were saved, it's, but as we endure, we demonstrate that we are true Christians. How can I show that I persevere? Keep on persevering. If you've endured all that, you will show that you're genuine. If you persevere, as you go through the trials, the struggles, the persecutions, the difficulties. Anybody ever had any of those? Anybody had any of those? Yeah. They will stay, they will stay true. They will stay true to the Savior. And oh yeah, there will be lapses. There can be lapses. We battle the flesh and we lose some battles. We think of Peter for some moments there. Um, quite a few moments. Yeah, he denied the Lord, didn't he? He really denied Him. But he went out and showed that he was genuine because he wept bitterly over that sin. You can think in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, there's a slough of despond. And there you have Christian going along with another guy and he gets in that slough and has to go through this. He gets out and he takes off back to where he came from. He was not going to go through. That's the first step almost. That they had. And you can think of the hill of difficulty. And what was it? Mistrust and timorous. They come running down the hill and they go back the other way. And there's Christian and he's going to go up the hill of difficulty. What's that? There's a lion there. Yeah, really. Yeah. I thought it was going to be all really niceties here and everything's going to be perfect. This is a hill of difficulty. You know what? There is no one who is elect who doesn't endure. If you are the elect, you will endure. Because it's by His power that's in you that you will persevere. And you look at through... The New Testament, whether it be Jesus, whether it be Paul or Peter, the doctrine of perseverance is taught. When you think of tulip, total depravity, the U for unlimited um, uh, election, right? You think of L for limited atonement, and then you think of I for irresistible grace. What's the P stand for in TULIP? T-U-L-I-P. Perseverance. The the saints will persevere. They will endure. They will go through. But you want to do that because then it will show the genuineness of your salvation. Let's look in John 8.31. We've been looking at some ifs in Paul's writing. And let's now look at what Jesus says. John 8.31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, now these are people who believed Him, maybe not necessarily true, genuine believers. You can believe that there is a Jesus, that there is a God, and not be truly a believer. In John 2, you can look at that, and Jesus um, did, uh, did not account them to be true believers, some of them, because they had seen these miracles and they believed. 
It's one thing to see, and yeah, yeah, he did it, but to really trust him, him tr- to trust your life. He says here, to those ones who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of me. A true Christian continues or abides, hupomeno, or a word here, endure, with him. Even the demons believe believe and they shudder. They they believe the Word of God. They know it's true. But they don't place, they never place their trust there in Him. You are true disciples if you continue in the Word, abide in the Word. Uh, Go to Matthew 24, 13. So we're dealing with endurance, aren't we? Persevering. A hard-sounding word. But the one... He's talking about uh, tribulation and such. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Oh, there it's talking about a future tense where he'll be saved. There are three tenses in the Christian salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved. There's salvation are being saved, sanctification, we will be saved, glorification. Right? Justification, sanctification, glorification. The one who endures to the end, he's the one who will be saved ultimately. The ones who will be saved ultimately are the very ones who were saved at the very outset. And we know we're not saved by works, but the one who endures, he shows that. Matthew 10.22 Oh, this is a really good key text here. Matthew 10.22 You will be hated by all because of my name. Boy, that, that could be true today, couldn't it? But it is the one who has endured to the end. The marathon race the one who finishes, who will be saved. Man, these are warnings. (laughs) Endure. Endure. That's that's the word we're we're really hitting on. Other passages I want to move on. You get the idea, right? Endure. Endure. If we endure, we'll also reign with Him. Reign with Him. Basileia is dealing with kingdom or king reigning the word sum is together with together with him for one thing that means we will reign with Christ together with him but it also means together we will reign we as Christians as saints the body of Christ will reign together it's not that there will be some kings here some Christians are kings and reigning and others not uh, all Christians will reign in that setting. We may endure here. We endure together, don't we? And there we will reign together. So we're going to reign together with other believers, with Christ, sitting there on the throne with Him because of the loyalty that we have to Christ, enduring to the end, 
and will be rewarded in eternal glory by reigning with Christ. So there's authority that we will have. Authority. We will have. Christ has all the authority. But we too will be given authority. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And you go, oh, yeah. Some others say, what is 1 Corinthians 6? Okay, got to be reminded, right? Verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Don't, don't you know this? He's saying to the Corinthians. You, you know this, don't you? you know, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? There are things that should be done right in the church that shouldn't even be taken outside to let secular people make decisions. It should be done in the church. Do you not know that we will judge the angels? He says, not only be judging yourselves and judging the world, you're going to be judging angels. And here it is, you have this thing here, this prideful thing, and, and you got things happening in the church. You need to get that matter settled. How much more matters of this life? That is something. And of course, uh, when you look at that, you realize that, boy, there is authority that's given in the church. And if we have, if we have the authority that's done here, and if we have... Uh, the principle of church discipline in the sense that we are under submission to God's Word and we hold, we hold each other accountable to this precious Word, right? Then we don't have to take it to the courts. You see Christians suing each other. You see people getting divorces, for instance, going out and letting the world make its decisions on our lives when clearly the Word of God says what? Not to have divorce. And you can go on, you know, on and on and on and on. You think that where they're making decisions where really the Scripture says it here. And the church has the opportunity to proclaim that. Look in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 6. And He has made us to be a kingdom. Kingdom. Kings. Priests to His God and Father. Because of that, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Kingdom. Priests. Stay on in Revelation. Go to chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes. Overcomes. Who are the overcomers? Well, that's the believers. Believers are overcomers. Nikao. To overcome. He who overcomes, I will grant to him, I will give to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame, and he did it at the cross, didn't he? 
overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And he says, hey, if you have an ear, <laughs> let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. That's incredible. That is an overwhelming statement. If we overcome, we overcome because of our belief. In 1 John it says that. He says, I'll grant to you to sit down with me on my throne. What does a throne represent? Kingdom authority. We're underneath Christ, but yet at the same time, we are reigning with Him. As He has stated. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That's incredible, isn't it? We will reign. Mm -hmm. Chapter 20, verse 4 through 6. Look at this. This is great. This is about the saints reigning with Christ. Then I saw thrones... And they sat on them. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And to those who had not worshipped the beast or His image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They were glorified. Taken up with Christ meeting Him in the air, the rest of the dead, who's the rest of the dead? The ones who are not believers, did not come to life. They were not giving glorified bodies like we are until the thousand years were completed. This is the first, the first resurrection. That first resurrection is the ones who are believers That's the first resurrection. There is another resurrection and that's of unbelievers and they will be put in their consequential punishment for eternal life. That's what chapter 20 is working on here. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. That's the one who will get the glorified body. And over these, the second death has no power. That means we will not have another death. We died with Christ at the cross. Our physical bodies will die, but we are new creatures that will get a new body. But they will be priests of God, remember? Kings and priests. And of Christ, and will what? Reign with Him for a thousand years. By the way, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. He talks about the devil then after this this war. And the the great battle that doesn't last. The devil who deceived the nations thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone. Beast and false prophet. The tormented day and night forever and ever. How long is that? Eternal. So there is no such thing as you just burn up and then that's it. 
going to be a rebellion after this time that the saints are reigning. It does mention 1,000 years there. It's mentioned six times. And that's something, I think, to, to note when God is emphasizing something and He always... It's just like creation. I take a, a literal creation. The first day of the week, second day of the week, the third day of the week. And whenever you put together years or days, when you have a number along with that statement, along with the years, and then it gives that, always throughout Scripture, unless uh, otherwise noted, but really through Scripture you will see that that's a a literal sense. And I think if one is going to be fair and they interpret Scripture, there is definitely a literal sense, but we can't take everything wooden literal sense. We know there are symbolisms there, but when one is stated this many times, and when you have Satan bound for a thousand years, and then you have the saints who are living for a thousand years, there are not any unbelievers until during that time there will be people who who come into that kingdom who are born of saints who are, um, in, in a sense, they are still sinners. They still have to be saved. That explains the sense at the end of this time, then there will be a great war that will mount up against God as Satan is what? He is actually unleashed. And that certainly cannot be now when we look at that. If Satan is bound right now, why is it that um, that Peter says he is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour? when it says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, authorities in the heaven. And matter of fact, it says elsewhere, like in First uh, John and other places, he's the prince of the power of the air uh, in Ephesians there. We know, that, is he deceiving nations today? If we're saying he's not deceiving nations and he's bound, we're stuck. We're in a problem because, yeah, God allows him to do what he does, but he's always done that. Satan is not able to do everything that he wants because God can stop him at any moment, but he is still, God is in control totally in the kingdom that we live presently, but yet in, in the same sense, the devil is being allowed to deceive nations, to deceive people in those nations. So we have to deal with that. And I think that is something definitely worth considering. Um, so, um, that, and that's one view, and it's really hard-pressed to hard press to say, well, Satan is on a leash, he's on a chain. It, no, it says he is, he is bound, he's put into a prison, he can't deceive the nations any longer. We have to deal with that. If you deal with it spiritually and say, well, that's already happened, and Christ beat him at the cross, well, that means we don't have any enemy that we battle with, and Satan is not deceiving the nations and everything that's happening today. Well, I don't know. How do we describe that? If we look in Zechariah, we have to be fair with Scripture and not make it convenient by symbolizing it. We must see in the sense of what is being said by the author and then compare it with other scriptures. 
I don't say it because it comes out on my particular side of view, but I do see things in Scripture where we have to answer to, and if we don't have an answer, then keep looking for it. Don't make up anything in your mind until you can answer other Scriptures. In Zechariah chapter 14, very first verse, and I'm not going to take all the time on this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half the city exiled, the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And some people would say, well, that's 70 A.D., so that's what happened in Jerusalem. We have a problem now. You have all the nations. It's not just Rome. Or some of the soldiers are going along with that. But it says in verse 5, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. And here's the text. Just follow the text. In that day, when Christ comes back, you say, how do you know that? His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move toward the north, and other half toward the south. That's an earthquake. And you say, oh, that's, let's just spiritualize that, and let's say, no, whenever he comes back, it'll be, such, it'll be just so explosive. You know, I mean, people... He talks about a literal earthquake. He mentions where this is at, a, a zell. They know where that's at. It's just like the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, uh, just like you fled then. And he says, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Amen. This is the second coming of Christ. And in that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It'll be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor light, but it will come about that at evening time it will be light. Is this 70 A.D.? No. He has come back to the Mount of Olives with His saints. And it's not, we can't spiritualize. Well, He spiritually came back. That's always the answer, but we, we have to be fair. If we're going to interpret Scripture, which most Reformed people do, the thing is that they start falling into what Augustine did, and he started spiritualizing this. At one time, he believed that there would be a, this kingdom time. He says, And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. You have the Dead Sea and you have the Mediterranean Sea, and now there will be life there. You can say, Well, what, do you, what time is this? When is this? Well, I can tell you, it has not happened. Christ has not come back yet. So when, when can we all say this? All Christians will say this. He has yet to come back. He will come back. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the same day we're talking about, when He comes back, the Lord will be the only one, His name the only one. And look, all the land will be changed into a plain. The land is going to change when He comes back. You're going to have Jerusalem lifted up, and you're going to have the land all around being flattened. And He names the names. If it, You don't spiritualize when you put names, when you put times. Geba to Remon, south of Jerusalem. South, Jerusalem will rise, remain on its site from Benjamin's gate. You, you know, he says, you know, the, the gates and such. He says in verse 11, people will live in it and there will be no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in spirit. This is when Christ has come back. Now, this is the catcher of all catchers. Is this the eternal state? Is it something that's in the future? Can we all agree on that? It has to be. Christ's coming. That's right. We're coming back with Him. He'll land on the Mount of Olives. He'll literally be seen. Follow the text. I've asked people this and they never can give me an answer. And when it is, it's, they say, well, I don't know what that means. 
that's not fair enough. That's not good enough for me because look at verse 12. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem, the ones who came up against them. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. When he comes back, that's what's going to happen to people. I literally say that's going to happen. It can happen right now. It will come about in that day, that same time that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them that will seize one another's hand. Hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered. Gold and silver and garments in great abundance. As a result, these nations that are still around. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle in those camps. Then watch this. Then, follow the text, it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, anybody who went against, if there are any of them that are left, there's going to be people out of those nations that were chosen before the foundation of the world. Any of those who are left that were in those Islamic nations or anybody else that's all over the world, United States and whoever, right? Some of those are going to be believers. They will go up from year to year to worship the king. Is this past tense? It's still in the same text. He says then, after all of this, after he's come back with the saints, he's going to, he sets up his kingdom. People are going to go up. There's going to be a certain time set the Lord of hosts and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. He doesn't go back to past tense here. A Feast of Booths is in the future. If people don't go up and do that, look what's going to happen. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. I will have no blessing. Is this the eternal state? It can't be. There's sin here. They didn't follow that actual Feast of Booths. If we can't take this in a literal sense, then what can we take literal in the Bible? You've got a whole second coming and then Him setting up a time and then Him being the king and us ruling. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. There's going to be kids out of people who are brought into the kingdom and they will not obey. And He says, okay, I'm going to have a plague on you. I'm not going to give you rain. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So it cannot be right now. It can't be in the past. It has to be in the future. And it can't be in the eternal state. When does that apply? I beg of you, is this possible? That there would be a time period when this happens, according to Zechariah. He says this will be a punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booze. And in that day there will be ascribed on the, the bells of the horses holy to the Lord. Everything's going to be accounted holy. Holy to the Lord of hosts. So, in that Zechariah 14, which, which is talking about it, there will be false prophets and stuff in Jerusalem to be attacked and such. Um, there will be foes of Jerusalem. That is a tough one to realize. There are others. Uh, in Isaiah, uh, a time when uh, you'll be considered an infant. In Isaiah 65 and 66, it talks about the uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Infants. You'll be considered an infant if you die at 100 years old. We're talking about living a long time. We're talking about even longer. That some people could live a thousand years. Because back in Genesis... That sounds unbelievable there, but we believe that. 
People lived almost a thousand years, but not quite. Was it Methuselah was what? 967? What was it? 969. But we believe that. He didn't live quite the thousand years. But see, there's years there. And here we have something that has to be explained. Isaiah talks about if, if you died a hundred years old, it's, it's considered almost like a curse. You'd be considered an infant. That means you're going to live hundreds of years. Do we spiritualize that? Or do we look at Genesis? Do we look at Zechariah? Uh, Jesus is the bread. We know He's not literally a piece of bread, but we do know that He is the one that we feed off of. So we know when to interpret that. It's still that there's a meaning behind it. In this sense, we're talking about a place, the Mount of Olives. We're talking about Benjamin's Gate. We're talking about very literal things that people would have known and how we can just escape that and say, well, that's just some kind of a, a spiritual thing. I don't. Then Ezekiel 40 through 48, you have nine chapters that you have to deal with a literal temple. And boy, we could go on that. That would take years to go through that. But it talks about where it's going to be located. talks about how big it is down to the very cubits, inches, everything there. Well, we in the ark... We say, yeah, I believe that the first temple that was built, I believe all the dimensions there, but I don't believe it in Ezekiel. That's just us. We are the temple. Or Christ is the temple. It's Him and it gives all the dimensions. And you know what people will say? Well, that's, that's us. That's our spiritual life. And you go through those chapters, folks, we have to, if we're going to remain expositing the Word, we have to take it literal. And that's the first rule of hermeneutics, where it is to be taken. And so I take time to do that to say, are we going to reign with Christ? And then when it says a thousand years, I cannot, I cannot just brush over that and say it doesn't mean that. I don't know. It just, it just can't happen. Now that's the reason why Jesus has said He ruled with a rod of iron, and uh, in Hebrews the first chapter, exactly. that's not to be taken uh, spiritualized. Jesus will because of the nations will run all over the place if they don't have. Jesus Christ ruling with a rod of iron that will not bend. Exactly. The rod of iron. And so that means whenever there's sin during that time, He can put it out just like that. And He will. Uh, It will not go on and go on like it does here. And eventually we know He's going to judge all sin. With that rod of iron, boom, somebody does sin, boom, just like that. Or He's going to put the curse if they don't go up to the Feast of Booths. There was a Feast of Booths in the past. There was a Feast of Booths there in the future. And so it sure can't be in the eternal state. So there's the time that answers what that is. And so when he says those years, why can't it be like that? And Otherwise, um, we go straight on into the kingdom. And that's fine with me. That's great. But I think there, there is one more final revelation before we get into that. In the Old Testament, He revealed Himself through many different ways. Then He revealed Himself through Christ. And then He reveals Himself through the New Testament, but He reveals Himself through the church. We are the temple. But ultimately, He will reveal Himself when He comes back in His glory. And He will rule and reign. And there will be people there that are glorified. And there will be people there that are not glorified. This is the ultimate revelation compared to what we have now. Can you imagine people that are unglorified looking at people that are glorified? 
And they will be ruling. They will have authority over all the earth. They'll be right. Who are we going to be ruling? Well, angels. We're going to be judging angels for their sin? No. But we'll have authority over them. But also it meant the nations. Remember when we read the When were we going to do that? Now it starts to make a little bit of truth if we can put all the Scriptures together. It helps so much. So I, I challenge, we, we can't make a decision on something unless we have done that. Erwin Lutzer said the discovery of the immensity of the universe um, will be that, that we are governing men. That's the idea of reigning. We'll be governing men on earth and angels and such. But he says it will not diminish but actually magnifies man's role in the cosmos. For if Christ is to rule over all things and we are to reign with Him, then we will be ruling over all the galaxies, affirming Christ's Lordship, the whole universe. The saints are the highest one. Daniel 7.27 Dominion given to the people, the saints. Some will build with wood and hay and stubble though. Some others will have, some will have ten cities, some will have five cities. Does that kind of make sense in a kingdom time? The ones who are built to have wood and hay stubble, that's the kind of reward they get back. Now look at me real quickly. This makes a lot of sense. If we deny Him, He'll also deny us. Ultimately, it's really talking about ones who deny Christ only. As Christians, can we do that? Yeah, this is talking about rejecting, disowning Him, renouncing Him. If you do that, He'll reject you. I've got a lot of um, text probably that are in your outlines there. don't really have to go over those. Is this like the rocky soil people when the persecution begins or hardship uh, trouble comes? There's a price to pay for those ones who reject Christ. They'll wither and they'll die and they'll live in hell forever. Uh, if one has named the name of Christ, you uh, will not deny Him. We can have our moments of denial, but I think what he's saying here, if you die with Him, you're going to live with Him. If you live with Him, then you're going to endure. If you endure with Him, you're going to reign with Him. He takes it all. You're just not going to live. You're going to reign. And then He comes back and says, if you deny Him, He'll also deny us. You see the parallelisms here? And if we're faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And we know that we have denied, and sometimes we uh, haven't trusted in Christ like we do, but uh, ultimately I don't really see this as Christians. We can see how it works in there. I put that in. Uh, we may we can deny by not speaking up for Christ when we get the opportunities. I've done that. Sorry. Wide open door and I didn't I didn't speak up. We deny by our silence to be uh, approved by our peers. But uh, if we faithfully continue to confess our belief, we confess Him and we don't ultimately deny Him. Uh, Matthew ten thirty two and thirty three. Uh, we went to that earlier. Um, if one backs out of Christianity and deny Christ, they walk away. It proves they were never genuine. They looked real, but they deny the Lord. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. The last one, the, the promise of faithfulness, the condition is faithlessness. Uh, to live in a continual state of unbelief. What's his promise? The unbeliever will be damned. Um, that's ultimately what it is. I will deny you and then the faithless I cannot deny myself because I am a God and all my words are true. To deny that and not to bring on punishment on the people who deny Him and the ones who do not have faith would be against what He's all about. His very character. God is faithful. 
God must punish sin. He'll be faithful to His Word. Believers will be condemned as He has stated. But He's always faithful to His people. Always. He's faithful to His people. He's faithful to His Word. He's faithful to His church. We have a covenant-keeping God who will not fail us. And His faithfulness is immutable. Regardless of how sometimes we uh, can sin or not be trusting in Him, um, but really, there's a contrast, and you have the first line of the hymn could be connected in a contrast to the third line. If we die with Him, we'll, we'll live with Him. Look at the third line. But if we deny Him, He will deny us. Look at the second line. If we endure, He will also reign with Him. But the ones who are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. He will bring on what He said. And uh, there is a faithful God. We are to endure hardship. He's faithful and righteous righteous to forgive us of our sins when we do fail Him. So we put the Christian in there, I think, ultimately, though. These are the ones who deny Him. You look at Matthew 10, 32, 33. The ones who deny Him, He will deny before the Father. So we put out the, uh, the, the invitation to the lost of saying, hey, listen, you can live with Him forever. You can reign with Him. But if you deny Him, He's going to deny you before the Father. And if you don't have belief, He still is not going to deny Himself. And He will do what He has said to do. So our salvation rests on the very faithfulness of God, His grace. It's not on our perfect record and what a God we have. But to the ones who are lost, they think they're believers. They need to take heed to this text, don't they? Anyway, it's rather comforting to the ones who trust in Christ. And it should be very uncomfortable to the ones who do not. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Scripture. Thank You for the counsel of God that are in these passages here. May we be challenged always to be faithful to You and to be vocal about who You are and what You have made us to be. Thank You that we have a great time to look forward to too in the future kingdom where You're ruling and reigning and we reign with You. What a great promise it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.